First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born or miscarried, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Well, it is Sunday morning, and you're looking fine, a sharp suit, a smart tie, a crisp, clean white shirt. One last check in the mirror on your way out the door, and that's when you see it. The thing that by some immutable law of nature you will always see anytime you dare put on that crisp clean white shirt, a big red tomato-y spot, slap bang in the middle. And now you've seen it, there's nothing you can do to pretend it's not there. You can rub and blot till kingdom come, but it's only going to spread. Well, we're nearing the end of this incredible letter, a letter full of sensational things. But all the way through, we've traced one disease plaguing the Corinthian church, one mindset that joins up all the pieces, a refusal to take up their cross and follow the apostle Paul as he follows Jesus. The Corinthians, if you remember, they think they've outgrown Paul, don't they? They have become already people. He is a not-yet person. They've become spirituals. He is all too physical. Working with his own hands in a disgusting manual trade to fund his rather crude-looking gospel ministry. Already, they say, we have become kings, philosophers. We speak in the tongues of angels. But look at Paul. What have we seen him do? He's dining with the pagans. He's letting the most scrupulous, tender-hearted little Christians dictate what he can and can't eat. He's obsessed with what we do or don't do with our bodies, as if the body still mattered to spiritual people like us. The Corinthians thought they were winning at Christianity, coming to church in their cleanest, crispest, whitest shirts. And as we get to the end of the letter, it's as if Paul takes a big spoonful of tomato soup, whoosh, flicks it right at them. 
What is the big red stain they've forgotten slap bang in the middle of their victorious understanding of the Christian life? Well, the spot in that picture is Jesus. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, if you're still standing at all. That gospel you and I share, the one thing we still hold in common centered on Jesus Christ. Do you remember him? How triumphant did he look? Was he living his best life now? How does Jesus fit in with the Christian life you Corinthians want to live? That is the big question today. At least once you've grasped the argument of this chapter as a whole, what sort of Christian life, what pattern of ministry and discipleship would we expect the gospel of Jesus to produce in us? Let me read from a scholar called Matthew Malcolm, whose PhD on this chapter is incredibly insightful. He writes, the Corinthians, it would seem, underestimates the ongoing power of sin and death in the present, and they're summoned by Paul to look to the future consummation of Christ's resurrected victory for the time of their own victory over mortality. Rather than an autonomous, triumphalist understanding of Christian spirituality, Paul presents a Christ-dependent conception that looks ahead to Christ's appearing. In other words, they think too highly of their own spiritual lives now and too little of their true bodily hope of life with Jesus, promised for the future. Well, chapter 15 is a big, significant chapter. There's a lot going on under the surface, and it's easy to think of this chapter in an ironically Corinthian way, as if this is a chapter all about triumph. If there's one thing we think we know about chapter 15, it's that this is a chapter all about resurrection, right? The resurrection chapter. After all, it was written for evangelistic talks and for Easter Sunday services, wasn't it? See, anytime we hear it. Once you crawl inside it, though, you realize this chapter is like one of those houses that is way bigger on the inside than it looks from the streets. It seems like this is all about something new. He's done with the boasting and the gifts and the cross. Now, new topic. What happens after death? And how can I prove it? But actually, it's the same subject here and all the same vocabulary that he began in chapters 1 to 4. It seems like this is the resurrection chapter, but look closer, and the key word all over this chapter is death. The word necros comes 13 times in this letter, and all of them are here. There's as much focus on what comes before for the resurrection as on what comes after it, and the order matters. It seems as though this is a debate all about theology, but actually the debate is all about Paul. Did you spot how significant he is, even in these first 11 verses? I preached to you, verse 1. I preached to you, verse 2. I delivered to you, verse 3. He appeared also to me, verse 8. I am what I am. I worked harder than any. 
So verse 11, we preached, and back then you still believed. With the implicit question, do you still believe the gospel I delivered to you? Now, why does Paul have to ask that? Well, it gets clearer and clearer over the chapter. It's because they despise his pattern of ministry. But you cannot have one without the other. The gospel and the kind of Christian life it produces belong together. And so finally, it seems to be a paragraph offering proof of Jesus' resurrection, doesn't it? That's almost always why we turn to these first 11 verses. The evangelistic talks almost write themselves. Look at all the witnesses. Look how evidence-based our faith is. But that isn't really why these verses were written. The resurrection of Jesus here is the one thing they still all agree on. Every Christian believes that. He doesn't have to prove it. This isn't written as a proof for inquiring pagans. This is written as a poke to sleeping Christians. Christians who confess all the words of verses 1 to 4, but somehow the Jesus we meet there has slipped out of their picture of the Christian life. It's not until verse 12, if you've got a print Bible, that we hit the real problem. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, the thing I've been arguing on which we all agree, the thing you received and believed, if Christ is raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, that seems like a pretty big deal, doesn't it? At least in some sense, the Corinthians are denying the resurrection of us Christians. And you might wonder with Calvin, why on earth Paul would leave it until right to the end of this letter to point out that actually the bodily resurrection of believers is kind of important. Unless their denial is just a little bit more nuanced than we might imagine. Perhaps, once again, it's not the words that are the problem. They'd recite the Apostles' Creed. But in effect, with all of their focus on spiritual victory here and now, the reality of sharing Jesus' future resurrection has slipped out of the picture. We're spirituals already, aren't we? What more do we need? This is where the money is. Maybe there was a bit of that Greek disdain for the body floating around in Corinth. Death is just ridding us of this earthly husk, letting us climb the ladder to some more spiritual form of being. Maybe that's mixed in with their own over-realized spirituality. Could they be a little bit like their neighbors in Ephesus, who Paul wrote to in 2 Timothy, the ones who claimed that for Christians, the resurrection has already happened? In effect, they thought they were raised when they became spiritual people. They're already living life to the full, making far too much then of life in this age and far too little of the age to come. And so chapter 15 is bringing them right back down to earth. Life in this age is marked far more by the cross than by the crown. Church is not for angels. Church is for the dead who live by God's power and cling to his grace. 
And if you don't like that, there are two absolute basics you need to remember. What you received and who you believed. First verses 1 to 7, what you received. At the heart of the Christian gospel is a once dead Messiah who was sacrificed for you. And unless you're holding fast to him, verse 2, it is all in vain. You are being saved, that's a present verb, but only as you stand in the gospel you once received. Let go of my gospel about Jesus, and it is all for nothing, all empty. Your life, your faith, all your work, your hope, all of it empty and in vain if you let go of him. Paul will keep coming back to that language over this chapter. It's language we met, if you remember, right at the start of the book, chapter 117. By their boastful Corinthian pride, they risked emptying the cross of all its power. That is still what this is all about. What was the gospel Paul delivered to them, the thing of first importance? Well, he doesn't have to argue that because everyone knew and everyone agreed. Most writers think that Paul quotes here from an early creed. Grammatically, there are four parts to what he delivered, four bullet points, each starting with a that. And yes, it ends in a very victorious way. It ends with Christ's resurrection. But two of the four points are about his death and burial. I delivered to you four basic truths that every Christian everywhere accepts. That word delivered is a kind of technical term for handing over a body of teaching, just like when the delivery man leaves the Amazon package there at the door and takes a photo to prove he did his job. There it was, intact, entire, unchangeable. That was Paul's gospel. And the big headline, bullet number one, Christ died for our sins. It starts with the cross. That is the kind of Messiah that we belong to, one who laid down his own perfect life in exchange for you, just as the Old Testament promised he would again and again. A truly good man who had done no wrong, but who died carrying your sin and mine, if you'll trust him. Number two, he was buried. That's what I preached to you. He was buried. His corpse went into a tomb. Because the price of your sin is real bodily and spiritual death. That is what he paid. And number three, that is the Christ who was raised. After three days of his body sitting in a cave, he didn't rise to some sort of perfected spiritual plane. No, his once dead corpse rose to new life, just as the Old Testament promised. We just sang that promise, didn't we? In Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One, your Messiah, see decay. And number four, it was that very once dead Jesus, that very corpse which lay in the tomb, who appeared to Peter in the Twelve. Not a spirit, a body, a person. So that this gospel, the entire 
perfect, unchangeable package could be delivered to the world by those apostolic witnesses. And then from verse 6 onwards, we get the icing on the cake. 500 other witnesses, then James, and then all the apostles. You all know it fine well, he's saying. It's not proof. You know it. There were 500 people floating around the Mediterranean world who had seen the risen Jesus. The point is that the bodily resurrection of Jesus was an objective reality which all Christians everywhere believed just like they did. The point is to rub in how utterly central the death and then resurrection of Jesus is before he shows the Corinthians how they're downplaying it. But by the way, how are they getting on those 500 witnesses? They must be living the victorious life. I mean, imagine that. They saw the risen Lord Jesus with their own eyes. Well, most of them are still around. You can go and ask them. Most of them, but they're not in great shape, truth be told. Verse 6. The truth is, they're dying off already. Isn't that an odd thing to say? What marks the people of this victorious Lord? Well, they are slowly but surely falling asleep, one by one. Not much triumphant pretense there about the Christian life. And thank God for that. Isn't that the story we're living through? The gospel has to work here in the real world where our kids get sick, where those we love die, Christian or not. So much for living your best life now. But how could it be any other way when at the very heart of this Christian gospel is a once dead Messiah who laid down his life in love? That is the God we follow. And he is quite some spot to flick at our clean white shirts, isn't he? How do you get around Jesus? We could pretend all sorts of things if we wanted about how well we're getting on, how impressive our gifts are, how eloquent our words, how spiritual our thoughts, how much we've grown. We could pretend all day. But how do we get around the fact that the one we come to worship lived a life that looked weak and deeply unattractive to the world and that culminated in a shameful death. All because you and I are such moral train wrecks and he was so full of grace that there was nothing else to be done for us. Well, that is the gospel you received. But if you're reading carefully, You'll have spotted there is as much in this chapter about Paul as there is about Christ. Verses 8 to 11 are easily ignored, aren't they, in the evangelistic talks? But actually, it's here that the point of the whole thing starts to come together. This isn't really a chapter about resurrection. It's a chapter about what the truth of Jesus' pattern of death, then resurrection, does in the life of a sinner. And for that, we need to meet one of those sinners. So verses 8 to 11, who you believed. Once again, Paul is going to introduce himself as the embodiment of the message. What kind of Christian life 
does this gospel of a once dead Messiah produce? Well, you saw that in a deathly apostle, spent for you. The wonderful thing in these verses is how Paul kind of picks up all the smears the Corinthians had thrown at him, and instead of running from them, he embraces them. It's all true. There is something different about me to all the other apostles. I was the last and the least. Jesus appeared to me totally out of order when all the apostle-making was done. I was born as an apostle, literally like a miscarried baby. Yet another very strange thing to say, isn't it? It's a strong word. The scholar Gordon Fee calls that a freakish word, the sort of word that would be thrown at an abnormal baby, born in an abnormal way, or often at a baby born dead. Paul uses the imagery of death all over this chapter to describe the life he lives. He's like a condemned man, a man sentenced to death, fighting beasts in the arena. We get that picture later on. He's like a dried up old seed, a dead seed buried in the ground. There was nothing impressive to them about an apostle who says he dies every day to his own self. His ministry looked weak and powerless and inglorious. And yes, he says, that is how my apostleship began. I was a persecutor of the church, verse 9. I was traveling to Damascus to extradite believers and drag them to their deaths. I was something dead and death-breathing, rotten. That was the raw material God's grace had to work with. But he did appear to me on that road and in my shame. And by the grace of God, I am what I am, your apostle. You see, that staggering grace, it has done something in my life, he's saying. For me, it wasn't in vain. How do you know, verse 10? Because look what that gospel of a once dead Messiah has done to the shape of my life. He sacrificed himself for me. I have spent myself for you ever since, verse 10. I have lived the life you think is beneath a true apostle, working harder than any of them for your salvation. A life that looks weak and deathly and powerless to you, but is actually just like our Lord. Paul lived a Christian life, modeled, modeled on the crucified one. And that is what he's calling us to, isn't it? He died once for sinners, I die every day for you. You think the fact I am the last and the least and undeserving ought to unapostle me, disqualify me. In fact, it is the very thing that qualifies me to be a messenger of grace. Where is that beautiful grace going to shine the brightest? Well, there is nothing more powerless is there than a stillborn child or a human corpse. When we're faced 
with that truth as we have been this past month, we have to recognize we are hopeless in the face of death. And there's something of that in our normal lives, isn't there? A hopeless weakness. It feels sometimes like there is human suffering and weakness and death everywhere we look. And that is the perfect canvas for God's undeserved, life-giving, loving power. Because what can the dead do for themselves? Nothing. It's all him. Do you see how every drop of sweat that Paul poured out for the Corinthians, verse 10, it was 100% grace. Every good thing he ever did for them, Christ did in him. He has nothing to boast of. But that grace of the Lord Jesus was not in vain. It provoked a response. It turned his whole life around. And so Paul could embrace everything they thought of as most pathetic in order to lift Jesus high. He's happy to embrace a life that looks weak to lift up Jesus Christ, Lord of the dead. What kind of Christian life does a Lord like that produce? If you knew that Jesus had died for your sins and entered the tomb and turned it into a womb of everlasting life to come, then how would it change the way you thought of the time you had left in this body? Well, it taught Paul that this life is for spending. We cannot run from death, but we don't need to fear it. We don't need to pretend it away. We don't need to run from weakness and pretend that we've arrived somewhere better than we all know we truly have, because the best is yet to come. If we really believe that we will share in the life of Jesus' resurrection, then we don't need to dress up the life of Jesus' cross. It's as if he's saying to them, the gospel of a once dead Messiah, given in love for your sins, can only produce the life of life-spending, death-embracing ministry you saw in me. Love poured out, all in gratitude. So whether it was I or any other apostle, you heard it from, verse 11, it was the same message. So we preach, and so once you believed. Do you still, friends? Or has it all been in vain? Well, let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus Christ, who poured out your life on the cross for us who were dead and death-breathing and devoid of love, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that we don't need to run from the truth of our weakness and unimpressiveness and all-too-present mortality. Thank you that this life is for spending and that you have freed us to spend it without fear. So help us, Lord, to pour it out gladly, knowing that life with you will be where all the joy is. For we ask it to the praise of your goodness and grace. Amen.